Welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. It's not just for contracting officers. If you're anywhere in the government acquisition world, this podcast is for you. Following our holiday tradition, this is a refresher of a previously released episode called What is a Wrap Rate? It's brought to you as always by Skyway Acquisition. Check out Skyway ACQ for more. All right, let's get it started. I was having a conversation with a contracting officer about pricing, and he asked me, why are we paying $400,000 a year for a software developer? It took me a minute to realize that he thought that the software developer was actually receiving a $400,000 a year salary. I didn't realize that software developers make that much money, but it turns <laughs> out they don't actually make that much money. Most of them don't anyway. That's true. There's probably somebody out there that does. The difference between what an employee is paid in salary and what is billed to the government is due to all the other costs that get added on, some mandatory and some discretionary. And in the government market, we call that a wrap rate, which is what we're going to talk about today. How we get from the actual cost that the employee gets paid to what's billed to the government. The gap between those two, among other things, is called the wrap rate. Before we get into that, let's stop and say thanks. Thanks this week goes out to Tammy King. Tammy's the president of Technically Speaking. It's an IT training company based out of Bradenton, Florida. I want to thank Tammy for liking and sharing our podcast episode on LinkedIn, specifically because Tammy and I share over 300 connections, but there are many, many people who still haven't heard about the podcast. And the best way for people to find the podcast is when people like Tammy like and share the content. Thanks, Tammy. Back to wrap rates. What is a wrap rate? We're going to walk through a very simple calculation for a wrap rate and talk about why it's important. The wrap are the additional costs that are wrapped around the core cost components that result in a final billing rate. This is true for labor and material costs, as well as subcontracting costs. Different parts of the wrap apply. Today, we're just going to talk about a labor wrap to try to keep this thing to less than an hour. Let me walk through the components that go into the labor wrap rate very quickly. Components, it's a fancy word. The pieces, the parts. At the core is the hourly pay to the employee, or if they're salaried, it's the salary divided by the number of hours, workable hours in the year. That hourly pay plus all of the indirect costs. We talked about those indirect costs in episode 107. It was the one we called pricing primer. They went through the basics of this. So hourly pay plus indirects, the fringe benefits like health insurance, vacation time, sick days or paid time off, the 401k match, payroll taxes like social security, those are all fringe benefits. There's also overhead, which is management costs, human resources costs. Overhead costs are costs that are, are directly related to the, the productions of goods and services. There's the supporting costs. Another category of indirects are the general and administrative costs, G&A. And these are costs like your facilities, the, the rent for the facilities, the utilities costs, insurance for those facilities. These are operational expenses that, that aren't really directly related to the, the goods and services, but are still required in order to perform. All right, you ready for some math, Kevin? You got your calculator out? Yeah, I've got my, I've got my phone fired up to use the calculator. I'm ready. All right. To make this easy for folks, make sure you post these on the Contracting Officer Podcast group on LinkedIn on the day that this episode comes out so they can actually see the math. Yeah, good point. Good point. I'm going to talk a lot of numbers here, and I'm going to go fairly quickly. So this will be difficult to follow in podcast world. 
For purposes of this example, I'm assuming an employee makes $80,000 a year in salary. The fringe rate is 30%. The overhead rate is 16%. The G&A rate is 5%. And then on top of all that, we're going to have 10% profit. Now, how those pools are calculated, what cost goes into those, that's all covered on other episodes. If you take $80,000 a year and you divide it by 2,080 hours, which is the commonly used workable hours number in the industry, you end up with $38.46 an hour paid to that person. So you take 38.46 and you multiply it by the fringe rate, which is 30%. So 38.46 times 1.3 yields you a fringe loaded rate of $50. Take that $50 and multiply it by the overhead rate, which is 16%. So $50 times 1.16 yields the overhead loaded rate of $58. It's funny how these came out to round numbers, but they did. <laughs> what are the odds? If you take the overhead loaded rate of $58 and you multiply that by the GNA rate of 5%, 1.05, you get $60.90, 60.90. This is referred to as the fully loaded rate. This is all of the costs wrapped together to the fully loaded rate. So hourly pay to the employee times fringe times overhead times GNA yields you the fully loaded rate. That's $60.90. Now the billing rate includes profit. For this example, we're going to say 10% profit. So $60.90 times 1.1 for 10% is 66.99. That is the billing rate to the government. So an $80,000 a year employee is billed to the government at $66.99 an hour in this example. Which comes out just shy of $140,000 a year. So it went from 80,000 that they get paid to 140,000 almost that the government is being billed. That, that's that gap we started with. Pretty substantial. If you want to talk about this in terms of wrap rate, we stop before we get to profit, just to the fully loaded rate. The wrap is 1.583. So if you take the 30% fringe, the 16% overhead, the 5% GNA, 1.3 times 1.16 times 1.05, you get to 1.583, which is 158% of the cost of the employee, all wrapped together. It's easy when you describe it that way. <laughs> right now, everyone's head is swimming trying to follow those numbers. Good point that I should post the math clearly. That's a habit we'll pick up is some of the key content. We'll put it in the Contracting Officer Podcast group on LinkedIn. So that way people don't have to furiously write this stuff down. So where is this stuff in the FAR? Uh, FAR time. It's not specifically in the FAR. These kind of calculations aren't covered there. But in Part 30, the FAR does cover cost accounting standards. And Part 31 is contract cost principles and procedures. We could do a whole podcast series on Part 31. For now, we have a lot of that content for our customers inside the Skyway community. Part 31 defines what costs are billable to the government, allowable versus unallowable costs. And we did a podcast episode number 75 about unallowable costs. Let's talk about where this occurs in the acquisition and execution time zones. In the acquisition time zones, this is everything but the requirement zone. 
In the requirement zone, you're not really worried about how much it'll cost, but once you move on to the market research zone, the RP zone, and the source selection zone, you may be dealing with the wrap rate, the indirect costs. Market research zone, when you're first trying to figure out how much it'll cost to do the job or industry, how much you could bid to do this job. The RFP zone is where industry is actually building their price proposals. And the source selection zone is where the government is evaluating those price proposals. In all of these cases, you may be dealing with wrap rates. And if you're not familiar with the acquisition time zones, they're covered in episode number three. This also occurs after contract award during the execution time zones. In the performance zone, this is where costs are incurred, billed, and paid. So obviously, if you have a cost-type contract, you're going to be dealing with the intricacies of these rates. You may also be dealing with wrap rates in the wrap-up zone when you're closing out contracts, when you're settling on what the final rates are. And we talked about that in the the wrap-up zone episode and a separate episode about uh, closeouts. And if you're not familiar with the execution time zones, they're in episode 84. Let's talk about why this is important. There are three variables that make up the rate. And there's sub-variables, of course, but three top levels. There's the, variable. there's the labor cost. There are the indirect costs that get added on top of those labor costs. And then there's profit. We'll start with labor costs. L- labor costs are largely driven by the market. The entire market, not just government contractors. You always talk about the cost of software developers because you dealt with that a lot. Industry must pay competitive salaries for software developers. Government contractors and commercial contractors are all trying to hire the same skill sets. Government contractors have to pay those salaries to compete with highly profitable commercial companies like Google, Apple, Facebook. Those are the big ones right now that are driving labor costs. A competitive salary for a software developer with a certain skill set is not really negotiable. If the government wants to pay less for it, they're going to get less skilled people because all things equal, someone with that skill set would probably work for a higher salary for a commercial company. So that's the raw labor cost. Indirect costs are more controllable. Here's, Here's where we're talking about the company's management structure, whether they've built in some efficiencies, like they use software tools versus raw labor to do certain tasks. Their facilities cost, what what kind of facilities, even even where they're located, right? All of these things cost more in an area like Washington, D.C. than maybe somewhere in the Midwest. Unfortunately, I mean, the market drives some of these costs, too, because the commercial market, like those companies we talked about, some of them offer beautiful new facilities and they have free lunches and they have lots of cool benefits that Government contractors don't traditionally have <laughs> for lots of different reasons that we could, again, they're competing for the same people. And some of those indirect costs, like these fringe benefits, they become a differentiator. Just look at the campus that Apple built in California and the new one that they're building down in Austin. Government contractors don't usually get to build facilities like that. Well, and, and honestly, if, if they did, they'd probably get you know end up on the news. Yeah, right. I mean, if, if Lockheed Martin built a building like that... <laughs> It'd probably be bad press for them. Right. The last variable is profit. And this is the competitive lever, but it's still somewhat market-driven. If you run a company, given the choice, do you want to make a fixed 7%, for example, in the government market? Or do you want to make whatever the commercial market would bear based on your ingenuity? (laughs) 
that choice, it, it's linked to the economic conditions, right? The industry, the market maturity, what's going on in the overall market. And we, we talked about how much profit different industries make in the uh, let's talk about profit episode. But that was based on that period of time. You go back 10 years, different industries are making different profits. You go forward 10 years, it's going to be different. So what's going on in the world impacts how much profit individual industries make, including government contractors. I think in any era, though, government contractors are not at the top of the heap in profitability. Consistent, understandable, probably, but top profitability, eh, probably not. I would agree. There, there, there are times when they were there were just more government contracts than other options, like when there's a recession, right. but the profit rate still wasn't that high. It's just that they happened to be the only ones that were actually making any money because everybody else was losing it. All right, let's get specific about why the government cares about wrap rates. The government needs to understand what is controllable and what's negotiable in the wrap rate. What levers can industry pull to lower costs? And if they pull those levers, does that actually help you meet your mission? If you're trying to negotiate lower rates for software developers or you put rate caps on software developer labor rates, government contractors may not be able to hire people for those rates. They, they may be priced right out of the business. Let's jump off the software developers for a second and use welders. I was on a, a trip to a, a, a military base recently, and they talked about welders is one of the things they're having real challenges finding. Well, it's because if you drive through downtown pretty much anywhere right now, there are lots of cranes, lots of buildings are being built. Well, those companies, all private companies, need the welders too, just like they need them on base and they need them to support the, you know, the VA, whatever, right? So it's the same phenomenon. It's not just for software developers. It's, 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 the, you know, it's the economy. It's the economy overall. Right now, welders are in high demand. It happens to be a skill set that was underserved over the last 20 years. And as a result, everybody's competing for that skill. That's something that as a government contracting officer, you need to understand you're competing with the whole market. It, not just some people like software developers, but everybody you're hiring, they can work anywhere. Right. You, you think about software developers. That's a high tech thing that, that d could command a high salary. But if welders are in high demand and there's not enough of them, you, you don't usually think of blue collar jobs as $200,000 a year jobs, but that is realistic right now in some trades. So government folks, understanding what goes into the wrap rate can help you understand why a certain skill set is more expensive or not. It's not just the salary. The salary is the, the core that drives it, but what goes on top of that salary also impacts it. Contractors can somewhat control within reason what goes on top of that raw cost but salary does have a big impact on the end rate. Moving on to the industry side, why does industry care about wrap rates? <laughs> this is your cost. This is how you compete. Given that you're trying to hire the same people and paying pretty much the same salaries for the same skill sets because that's what's driven by the market, the amount of cost that you add on top of that to get to your billing rate is what makes you competitive or non-competitive. Yeah, you got to understand what levers you and your competitors can actually pull to manipulate the overall price. You know, which ones can you mess with? As an advanced concept, large companies often create many separate cost pools to shift indirects around and create a price advantage. So this is, this is purely an accounting function. <laughs> and all the costs are still 
the cost somewhere, but a specific subset of employees may be lumped into a pool that don't have as many indirects applied to them so that they can be more competitive for one acquisition. That's advanced stuff that we'll stay away from here. Smaller companies can generally offer higher benefits for the same overall building rate because they have lower overhead costs. All things being equal, at the fully loaded rate point, if you have lower overhead and GNA costs because you have less infrastructure, less management, all that kind of things, you can afford to have more fringe costs and your end wrap rate will still be the same. And that fringe cost could be more vacation days or a higher 401k match or any other number of cool things. Before we start talking about all the different benefits that companies can offer, whether small companies are better or large companies are better, let's wrap this one up. On the government side, to the extent that you can, figure out what a competitive billing rate should be. So you're not surprised by that rate that comes in, that $400,000. You don't have to have that conversation. Understanding the components that make up the wrap rate or the billing rate helps you understand how to get from a person making 38 bucks an hour to being billed at 66 or 100 or, or whatever. If both sides use the same concepts, wrap rate versus labor rate versus billing rate, although there are different terms for them, but understanding the basic concepts behind them is going to improve communication overall and make for better contracts. I'll take this all the way back to the beginning. When you see a billing rate for an employee, don't assume that employee is becoming a, a millionaire because they're getting paid so much. There's a lot more that goes into the billing rate than just their salary. And as we've learned in the last 15 minutes, it's exceedingly difficult to make this sound simple because it's just not. You're right. There, there are lots of people involved in calculating and managing wrap rates. There are lots of people involved in pricing. There are lots of people on the government side involved in analyzing these things. It's not easy. We tried to make it easy here. All right, with that, I'll talk to you later, Kevin. See you, Paul. Thanks for joining us for this refresher episode. When you need help understanding how the government views things like wrap rates, Skyway's team of contracting officers is there to help. Visit Skyway ACQ or give us a call at 877-884-5280 to learn more. That's it for today. We'll see you next week.